Howdy now, people. From the Sunshine State, I'm Greg Carlwood, and the mystery behind UFOs and high strangeness events is one of the most talked about subjects around here, but I don't know how much closer we've come to any real answers. Some say the little green pilots of these strange crafts are biological drones working the explorational front lines for some cosmic beings we never see directly. Others think they're demons doing human experimentation on their quest to engineer sustainable physical vessels. And some even conclude these frail little creatures are just us from the digital dystopian future where our physical bodies have atrophied or that we're dealing with an aspect of a breakaway civilization. But if you've read enough cases, these common ufology tropes don't even apply to half of the truly strange things that are reported in these bizarre experiences. Manted beings, reptilians, balls of light, implants, body marks, dead relatives, tours of odd fleshy biomechanical crafts, missing time and downloads of information that sometimes take years to unpack. Well, as the disclosure door cracks open wider and wider in the mainstream public square, more and more deep thinkers from various disciplines step up to the plate to take their crack at the seemingly unsolvable enigma that is the UFO and the beings behind it. And for us today, that is James Madden. A PhD in philosophy, lifelong athlete, martial artist, fitness coach, and award-winning professor of philosophy at Benedictine College. He's the author of Thinking About Thinking, Mind and Meaning in the Era of Techno-Nihilism, Mind, Matter, and Nature, a Thomistic Proposal for the Philosophy of Mind, and Unidentified Flying Hyperobject, UFOs, Philosophy, and the End of the World which tries to take a step back from the dead-end conclusions about the UFO we have so far, and instead takes a fresh philosophical approach to what we could be dealing with. It's a book full of new ideas, and new ideas are certainly needed, so let's do the damn thing. The UFO question tackler, uber-umwelt educator, and philosophical approach taker. James, welcome to the higher side. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate it. Feel free to call me Jim. Will do. Well, thanks, Jim, for doing this. Yeah, right. You bet. Just don't call me Dr. Madden. <laughs> Fair enough. You wrote a great book with Unidentified Flying Hyperobject, and I've been doing this a while, so it's hard to find truly fresh takes as to what all this might be about. But you cover some of my favorite people in the space today, Jeff Kripal, Diana Pasolka, Whitley Strieber, and Jacques Vallée mainly. And you pair their ideas with the insights from the great philosophers of history to put forth some ideas that do feel new and unique. You mentioned being a latecomer to the UFO question, but that, quote, the problem of the UFO has a great deal of resonance with the philosophical problems you have spent your professional life and personal life pondering for the last 30 years. And that sounds like a good way to get into this. How so? How are they similar? Sure. I mentioned in the introduction book that I'm sort of a, a UFO latecomer, as you mentioned. And I'm a almost cliche Gen X guy. And so when my kids were mostly in high school, it was time to show them the X-Files. And As you do. As you do, yeah. Anyone serious about educating their children is going to show do the whole 10 season run of the X-Files. And I had never really been into the UFO question, seriously. Okay, it was, for me, it was sci-fi entertainment. But I remember I, we were watching the X-Files end of season one, exactly when that first big Pentagon briefing happened. And I was like, so apparently Fox was right, you know, or I'll admit it. And I'm almost embarrassed to say is that when the government said it was okay to think about UFOs, I was like, oh, wait, this is something interesting, right? And so 
at the time I was writing one of the books that you mentioned, Thinking About Thinking, and it struck me that a lot of the same questions about cognition that I was considering in that book might have carryover for how we would think about the UFO. Okay, so a lot of my work in the philosophy of mind is about what is it about human thinking that makes it possible for us to experience a world? And in my particular approach to this, the way, and it's not just me, it's I'm drawing on very important figures like Martin Heidegger, like you know people in the Pittsburgh School of Philosophy, we can talk about all that if you want. They all see that the way a world becomes available to us is that we limit our options, okay? That we have to limit our options for perception. And that would mean though, there's a whole lot out there that we just normally are not attuned to. And it's then not surprising if that is very often we bump into things that make no sense to us whatsoever because the way we mostly get around the world is by grossly oversimplifying it. And so there probably are far more interesting, complicated things that we just don't perceive because they're not relevant to how we get around. And so then it's not surprising that we would bump into things that don't make sense to us. And then when I took that sort of thinking about cognition and started thinking about the UFO, bells and whistles went off for me because it seems to me I'm not surprised now that something like the UFO phenomenon is a persistent part of human history because of the way I think about cognition. On top of that too, in addition to philosophy of mind, I've done a lot of philosophy of religion stuff. And so the whole status of miracle, the status of the anomalous has always interested me from an epistemology standpoint. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that more people are connecting the history of miracles and that kind of stuff with ufology. I think that's way more exciting than visitors from a planet, because if you're in a materialist box, that's the only place you can go. And I don't think we should be in a materialist box. And as for the meat of this thing, you write about the limitation of the standard ideas of aliens or angels and demons, and you propose an idea you call the uber umwelt terrestrial hypothesis, which is going to need some explaining, but help us out here. Sure. Okay. So it's uber umwelt. Okay. <laughs> So the Umwelt is, it's a German word. It typically gets translated as environment. I don't like that translation so much. And I think it's mainly because we don't really have a really good English word for this. Okay. But the notion of the Umwelt first shows up in early 20th century behavioral biology. And then it gets taken up by phenomenological philosophers like Martin Heidegger, who I talk about quite a bit in the book. And then, then later now, contemporary cognitive scientists like Andy Clark. The idea of the Umwelt is that, in fact, organisms, the way it's often put, make an environment for themselves. Now, that doesn't mean literally that you know it's an idealist view where we sort of think the material objects around us into existence. It's more subtle. It's more like what I was talking about earlier. The famous example on this, Andy Clark uses this, and I use it every time I talk about this, is there's a certain kind of tick. Okay, and this tick its whole perceptual and then ultimately cognitive package is just built around three things. It can sense the amount of mammalian skin acid in its direct surroundings. I think it's butyric acid. It can sense the differences of heat signatures on the surfaces of things. And it has a way of sensing when it lands this tension on the surface. So it can figure out where the skin is stretched tighter is how I understand it. And that's all it has. 
That is its whole means of accessing the world are those three senses. And interestingly, we don't have any of those. And this ticket, it's so good with those that it can time its jump on you when you're walking by and then very easily find a vein and stick its needle in there and suck your blood. And so the idea is, is that ticks umfeld, right? It's full experience of the world. The world that's available to it is cashed out solely in terms of skin acid, you know, heat differences on surfaces and surface tension. That's it. Now, the tick is getting the world right. I mean, that acid is, it's in the room I'm in right now. It's in the room you're in right now. Like there's heat differences, all that. It's there, there. Those are real things. Okay. But what it gets though is just a small, I like to put it a caricature of the world. It has carved out a part of the world that is relevant to it and its survival strategies. And basically, it's evolved in a kind of dialectical relationship between those elements that it can sense and its ability to sense them and a back and forth. So the tick gets the world right, but it only gets the world right as it's available for the tick. It's its umvel. Now, maybe the distressing thing about this is like, well, humans are no different. We have a certain sensory package that makes the world available to us, okay? But that's a caricature, right? There's maybe infinitely many other attributes of the world that are available out there, as it were, that we're just basically ignoring because they weren't really relevant to our survival strategies. And so that's the idea of the Umwelt. Now, as I mentioned a little earlier, it seems to me that that entails that there's a massive Uber Umwelt, a super so umwelt means around world, okay, literally. Well, there's a super around world then, right? There's this whole rich world of things that we're just not set up to deal with. And so if you think of it, if when the tick senses Greg and you know jumps on him and, and crawls up his arm and all that, the tick understands in some sense something about Greg, but just a sliver of it. Like you're infinitely greater, okay. But we have to admit then that we do the same thing to the tick, right? That what we get about the tick is a caricature of the tick. And whatever the tick really is, withdraws from our perception of it is infinitely greater. Okay, so I think the very notion of an Umwelt entails an Uber Umwelt. And if you accept the existence of an Uber Umwelt, then you should expect the world to be unexpected now at the edges. Okay. So what does that have to do with the UFO? And I understand too, you know, I'm very much simplifying prior ufology. And I always want to say this is I don't think it's good for academics to come in to say ufology or any of the other interesting fields of study that you talk about on your show. I don't like it when academics come in and say, well, the professionals are here. We're going to clean this up for you. Because <laughs> I mean, there have been very, very smart people who probably renounced what could have been perfectly good academic careers and it cost them a great deal to become ufologists for the last 70 years and to act as if you know the academics is going to come in and like show them what's up I really want to resist that but there are tools of academia too so kind of the standard ufology picture if I can indulge that is it's this extraterrestrial hypothesis right the idea that you know what UFOs are they are literal pieces of machinery that come from a distant planet Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Standard Hollywood, and it's interesting. I I didn't realize till I got into this is already by 1970 you have people like John Keel saying that's a really really facile way to think about this. 
right? And he's referring to people from the 50s, if you read Operation Trojan Horse, that already by 1970, the really smart people doing ufology are really not into the extraterrestrial hypothesis. And then like you get Jacques Vallée's stuff in the 70s, you know, well, he's already writing in the 60s, but like if Invisible College, et cetera, et cetera, there too, he's resistant to the idea that this is literally extraterrestrial. And what's the problem with it? Well, okay, so the extraterrestrial hypothesis would explain the data, right? So, you know, people see certain things, okay? And the extraterrestrial hypothesis would explain the data. But it would require us also to like address the probability of something traveling to us from a distant star system or something. It would require us to address the probability that these beings when they're encountered are bipedal and their eyes are in front of their head. Okay, so all these things that you wouldn't necessarily expect another species that evolved on another planet to share in common with us, these things seem to have in common. To make sense of that, people will say, well, you know, maybe they're avatars trying to like look kind of like us so that we can start to understand them, but they don't want to look completely like us because they want us to be surprised and things like that. That's fine, but what did you just do? You packed more information into your hypothesis and thereby you've lowered the probability. Hmm. So like the more I claim, the lower the prima facie probability of my hypothesis and then the stronger the evidence would have to be. So I think it's a very important point. And this is basically what Valet does with the extraterrestrial hypothesis. He says, what are the chances that someone could fly here? What are the chances that they would look like us? What are the chances, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that seems to like become this probability suck on the extraterrestrial hypothesis. So then people like Valet and Hal Putoff and Keel, I mentioned, go then for ultra terrestrial of some sort. Or, you know, Valet will mention extra dimensional and stuff like that. Okay, that's great. But now, if they're ultra terrestrials, you've got to make sense of the fact that, you know, we mostly don't see them. Okay. That they're this massive technological society that goes undetected by us, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems like you're going to have to pack a bunch of stuff into that story that's going to lower the overall probability of the hypothesis, which is always a problem. Now, what I'm proposing with the uber umwelt terrestrial hypothesis is actually, I'm saying, well, we've already got concepts that are used in phenomenological philosophy in cognitive science that have very good explanatory value over there. So I'm not asking us to add a new thing, right? We can take things that are already fairly well verified from other disciplines and use those to explain all these weird questions we might ask about ultra-terrestrials. Why don't we see them very often? Why don't we see traces of their history, et cetera, et cetera? Well, because they're in the uber umwelt. And we would expect that there are things in the uber umwelt that just are not on our perceptual radar given our evolutionary history. So that's the proposal I'm making. And the idea is, is that this would be a way of getting out of the way of some of the sort of probability difficulties that you have for a standard ultra-terrestrial hypothesis. Mm-hmm. I like it a lot. And for context, we also have to fold in the definition of a hyper object, but I really like the Pizza Hut analogy you have in the book. Conventional, cultural, simplified analogies really work good for me. And this Pizza Hut one is quite fun because it explains how something can be somewhat known, but also unknown in a different kind of context, in an umbrella kind of term context. But talk to us about that a little bit. Sure. So the Pizza Hut example comes from another philosopher named Graham Harmon. And he's 
kind of the founder, kind of the central figure in a school of thought called object-oriented ontology, triple O, that's what they call themselves. And I'm pretty much a fellow traveler with all that. And you know, the object-oriented ontologist is something similar to what we said already, is to say that objects show up for us given how we have a take on them, but they're always greater than just our take, right? There's the object always withdraws to some degree from our perception of it. And Harmon thinks that we need to take all objects seriously, that they're all on par with each other. And I'm going to kind of backtrack into some metaphysical stuff if that's okay here. Sure. So this is one of the central sort of debates in philosophy going back to Aristotle. So Aristotle is an interesting, you know, he's an ancient Athenian philosopher, right? Plato's student. And Aristotle was very impressed with the fact that the objects that we perceive are all composed of finer physical objects. Okay. So I can take this desk and we could break it down into like the sheets of wood and the screws and the glue and such, but then those things could be broken down. Those things could be broken down. But he figured that ultimately there's going to be some ultimate constituents, right? The elements. And for the Greeks, you know, given their first try at chemistry, it was earth, air, water, and fire. And then the question for Aristotle comes up, well, why would you think that there's a desk, that that's a real thing in addition to or over and above the earth, air, water, and fire? Why not just say, it's just earth, air, water, and fire? And more importantly, why wouldn't you say about a cat that it's just the earth, air, water, and fire and not something else called a cat? Why can't we just have a story at the very basic level? You mentioned materialism early and really what Aristotle was worrying about was something like a very, very radical form of materialism, which interestingly was the older view. I mean, like, so that most early philosophers were some kind of materialist like that. Okay. So Aristotle though then says, well, I think we'll use the example of the cat is a real thing because even though the cat is composed of the earth, air, water, and fire, it has powers that the earth, air, water, and fire don't have. Okay. So like, the elements don't hunt, right? The elements don't chase other cats for reproductive purposes, right? The elements don't grow hair, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So he's not saying like the cat's some spooky thing in addition to the elements. He's just saying it's not the same thing as the elements. Moreover, he says, look, the cat is constantly exchanging its elements with its environment, right? It sheds its hair, but it grows new hair. It eats tuna, right? And incorporates tuna itself. It lets yesterday's tuna remains go in the kitty box, all that stuff. Okay. So clearly it's changing elements over, but it remains the same cat. So he's saying the cat isn't just the elements. So Aristotle's impressed then that some things have powers that their parts don't have and some things they have a persistence that their parts don't have. And so that kind of in the history of philosophy sort of becomes then the standard for saying a thing is a real substantial entity. Does it have its own powers and does it persist under its own conditions? Mm -hmm. Make sense? Yeah, like agency. Yeah, agency. Yeah, I like that. Agency and persistence. So Aristotle though thought that pretty much applied to organisms and nothing above that. So Aristotle would say, okay, so the elements are things. And then like the parts of organisms are things, like the organs, they're things in a way. Okay. Then the organisms are, but then he doesn't go on and say like a population of cats is a thing, but he doesn't say that a city is a thing in the way a human is a thing. He cuts it off so that for Aristotle, the real things are what I call, or following another philosopher, they're the middle-sized dry goods. 
They're the things that are like kind of medium sized. They're not as fine as elements. They're not as big as cities. They're things like the cats, the other human beings, the tables, the chairs, the things that we can like get our hands on. Now you can see right away where one might worry about that. Well, wait, that's to say the real things are the things in our umfeld. But wait, isn't there more to the world than just our umfeld? And someone like Graham Harmon, and I'm really following Graham Harmon on this, will say, well, wait, what about Pizza Hut? Okay. So right now, if you go to your local Pizza Hut, all the workers there, they could all, you know, die, right? Be replaced by new workers. And you'd still have the same Pizza Hut. All the machinery there could like wear out and be replaced by new machinery. All the customers could come and go over a generation, but you'd still have the same Pizza Hut. So it looks like that Pizza Hut store has persistence that it's over and above its parts. Moreover, Harmon would point out that Pizza Hut, we all behave differently when we're at Pizza Hut than we do at other places, right? The franchise exerts a certain kind of control over the people that work there, et cetera, et cetera. And so it looks like Pizza Hut has powers that its parts don't have. So Harmon would say, and I think he's right, then we need to say in a similar way that we think that your cat is a real thing over and above its parts, so is Pizza Hut. It looks like Pizza Hut is an object, right, on its own, doing its own thing, and we're parts of it. And then Harmon will push it further. Okay, well, then you've got the corporation Pizza Hut. The people who work there, they all behave differently in virtue of working there. The corporation could survive all of them. So it seems like you have to say that Pizza Hut Inc. is an object now. And now look, as we do this, our objects are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And they're also getting further and further out from what you and I can really comprehend and understand. Like really, does anybody know what the hell is going on in a multinational corporation? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, right? And then Harmon will point out, like he'll say, the Civil War. Well, the Civil War, what is it? It's something composed of a bunch of human beings and machinery and things doing stuff. But nobody ran the Civil War. The Civil War really ran itself ultimately. It certainly survived the replacement of a lot of its parts. You know, a generation of young men got changed over, unfortunately, in that war, right? And, and a lot of other people. So now, now it looks like, look, the Civil War looks like it's an object in the same sense that your cat is an object or you're an object. It's doing its own thing. It's running on its own steam. It has some kind of control over its parts, et cetera, et cetera. And then people like someone named Timothy Morton, they came up with the idea of a hyper object. Okay. And what is a hyper object? It's an object that in its very nature only kind of dips its toe into our umfeld. We just get a little bit of taste in that thing. It just vastly, vastly, vastly outstrips what we could possibly fathom. He has in mind things like the environment, right? Or global warming. Or he talks about like all the plastic in the world. What is that really up to? Okay. Because Tim is a, an ecological thinker. I think he's right about this. And so economies, histories, extended events, these all seem to be a kind of hyper object that we aren't running. And in fact, they're running themselves and we may be run by them. Mm hmm. Yeah, I love this kind of stuff. And that's a lot of foundational context. It's important to lay that foundation. I can't believe we're already a fourth into this thing. But I do love thought exercises about giving agency to things we might not typically think of. The Civil War is a good example. Like, what is that? Is it alive? Are ideas alive? Like these sorts of things. 
are pandemics things? <laughs> yeah, on several levels, people around here ask that question. So a colleague and a frequent guest, Gordon White, once used the example that if a banana wants to get to space, it better make itself appealing to humans. And I love that. That's another one of those things, like the agency of all things. And one of my favorite obscure subjects is Magonia, the sky realm and the beings that supposedly are in it. Greg, may I interject something real quick? Yes. I never heard that example before. If a banana wants to get to space, it should make itself appealing to humans. 100%. That's awesome. I'm going to quote that. Because right? <laughs> uh, here's the thing is in this kind of object-oriented thinking, this hyper-objective thinking, there's a kind of anti-humanism in this. I'm not saying anti-human, I'm saying anti-humanism. You know, so I don't hate human beings, but the way this thought is going is it's saying this humanistic notion that the idea that we run the world and the world is here to serve us and ultimately we're in control of things and we can assure ourselves whatever outcome comes. As soon as you admit that there are hyper objects and that for all I know, the desk I'm sitting at might be a hyper object, right? then this humanistic thing is done. Right. Like the human perspective isn't a priority to the objective world. It's just one perspective of many. Yeah. And maybe the bananas ran the space program, right? <laughs> exactly. That's where these things go. And so to bring up Magonia, it's just such an interesting bit of writing. And of course, Vale is the one who introduced me to Magonia. And you have a chapter in the book, Magonia as Hyper Object. The Organic Control Hypothesis and the Reenchantment of the World. It's a chapter title bordering on perfection, but talk to us about this chapter and how this foundation we've laid applies to something like Magonia. Yeah. Okay. So if you admit uh, that Pizza Hut's a real thing, if you admit that there are hyper objects, let's kind of talk about the UFO then. Is it entirely surprising to you that there could be this entire even like nuts and bolts technology system that is taken off on its own, that is independent from us now, that sort of shows up occasionally on the edges of our room belt. That does not seem surprising to me, right? Who knows what systems are out there operating as objects that we're not aware of. So then the UFO thing sort of makes sense. But then so do, you know, fairies and goblins now. Okay, you know, so do various religious apparitions, so do all these things. And then you're right, Jacques Vallée calls this Magonia, which is the medieval word for sort of the fairyland. And by the way, you know, I never thought I'd be, you know, on a major podcast coming out for fairyland, but here I am. <laughs> okay, so right, here we are. Thank you for bringing me on. Yeah, of course. Um, but yeah, I'm coming out for fairyland. Because we can now see Jacques Vallée's Magonia really is just the same thing as the Uber Umwelt. All right. It's this world that like sort of transcends the basics of human experience. And we would expect scientifically now, we would expect that there would be such a thing. And Valet couples this with this notion of a control hypothesis. You know, he says all we know about the UFO is it seems to be trying to manipulate us. It seems to be trying to run us. It seems to be trying to have certain effects on human beings. And it's interesting in Valet, and I think this is really important, it seems to do this by what I call a process of mythologization and demythologization. It seems to show up in uncanny ways that then introduces a kind of story we tell ourselves about things, okay? And then a little later, it comes back and it sort of takes that story back and gives us another one. So there's always this kind of cycle of mythology 
demythology going on. Although I would kick it to historians to correct me on that. But that seems to be what's going on. And Valet seems to think that seems to be a mechanism of control. It looks like we're being regulated and we're being regulated by cognitive manipulation. What I do then is I say, well, look, that sounds like maybe we're involved in a hyper object that we think of maybe as a kind of organism, right? That what do organisms do? They regulate the behavior of their parts by like releasing hormones, right? And then like lowering those hormone levels. So maybe what's going on here is we are involved in some hyper objective reality that's beyond our ken. And occasionally this thing, like we get out of whack, right? The hyper object catches a cold and it's going to regulate things by sending these messages downstream to sort of get the parts back in line, to get the parts participating again so the whole can work. So that's what I mean by it's the organic control hypothesis. It's taking Valet's control hypothesis and interpreting it through the metaphor of an organism operating as a hyper object. Mm -hmm. I like it. It's kind of like a metaphysical control conspiracy. I mean, this whole show started with conspiracy in mind. Obviously, the umbrella has widened and widened, but just the idea of unseen influences, manipulations, why do we do what we do and think what we think? It's not always human puppet masters. There might be hyper object puppet masters as well. Yeah, I think that's an important point, Greg. I mean, so as I said earlier, who really runs Pizza Hut? The CEOs that run Pizza Hut, that supposedly run it, they're just as much victimized by Pizza Hut as the people eating the poison, right? <laughs> like their lives are dominated by this thing too. Right. And they think they have control, but they might not because they can be swapped out too. A CEO can be swapped out and the thing is still the thing. I mean, this kind of makes me think about the idea of tulpas and egregores and just ideas, the non-physical aspects of reality. Are ideas alive? Did they have agency? You talked to Diana Pasolka in a really good conversation that I listened to. And in it, you quoted her book where she said, something to the effect of deities exist as information. And that kind of gets into this realm of archetypes and are they real? Like people do see visions of Jesus and Mary, but they don't see visions of Batman. Batman is a well-defined archetype that has been chiseled down to a set of characteristics over a long period of time. Maybe in 2000 years from now, people will see Batman. Maybe it takes a while for ideas to actually develop some kind of physicality to them. But I just thought that was really interesting. Deities exist as information. Are Zeus and Prometheus characters constructed from the human mind and given shape over time, or were they swirling around in the non-physical until they were detected? And then you fold in what Valet is saying about myths and being a control system, and then it gets really weird. Like, What's going on on the ethereal plane? And what does that really mean to unpack deities existing as information to you? Yeah. So this is kind of where I'm thinking of taking this inquiry in the next step. And it was kind of cool to see like it was on Diana's mind too. <laughs> and so one, when you said, you know, is it the, using the example of Zeus and Prometheus? You said, well, are Zeus and Prometheus out there swirling around in the Uber Umwelt on their own, or are they just constructions of the human mind? Okay. And I think, and I don't mean this snotty, Greg, but I want to say that's a false dichotomy. I think that's one of the things I think we need to get over. Right. So the things that show up for the tick are real, 
Okay. And the tick doesn't make them up. Okay. The things that show up for us are real and we don't make them up. All right. So there are things in the Uber Umwelt. And let's say we bump into them in a new way. Okay. So now what do you have? You have a new relationship. And that relationship itself can become an object. It can take off on its own. It can be running. So even if we said something like Prometheus, you know, because like say now, because our technological obsessions that we have, though I think humans have always had technological obsessions, right? We can talk about that. But say the Prometheus is you have this idea of a technological society that we all desire, and that idea is taken on a life of its own. And now we're being run by that idea. That idea has become an objective thing on its own that's greater than us. It's a deity of, of some sort. Fine. But that presupposed that there was something we entered into a relationship with in the real world, in the umbelt in the first place for that thing to get out of hand. So I would say, yeah, the fact that we are run by that deity is a sort of emergent phenomenon of our behavior. But we had to encounter something beyond us to make the change that now is running us in a new way. So you would say that these deities aren't inventions of the human mind, but maybe discoveries that we bumped into yeah. along the way. And now the relationship between us and those things now has taken on this sort of hyper-objective thing that maybe transcends both of us. So how does your idea differ from like a multi-dimensional stack because that's common too. That's a trope like fairy world. Well, there are kind of rules to fairy world. You don't eat the food and drink you're offered or you get stuck there. They come and try to take children. There is overlap with what people talk about happening in gray alien encounters, but it's not exact. So we could be saying that there's different hyper objects and hyper societies of things out there that we rarely kind of bump up against, but sometimes do. But that sounds very similar to the idea of a multidimensional stack of civilizations or beings living in the same space that sometimes bleed in to each other's realities. Is there a distinction I'm missing or is it kind of similar? I think maybe this is the very same idea. Yeah, I think it's very, very similar. Okay. <laughs> Two people I like on this. So there's a, you know, Bernardo Castro just had, he published an article on, on the UAP. And he referred to some of his earlier work in that article. And he referred to what he did in a book he called Meaning in the Absurd. Okay. But he didn't refer to work that he did in another book called Brief Peaks Beyond, where he gives a hypothesis of the UFO there. It's very similar to what you and I are talking about here. It's like you've got, different systems out there in the world that are beyond the human can and occasionally we bump into each other and form a new relationship and now you're going to get like all these overarching hierarchies, right? Second person I want to mention this, and William James is what I'm talking about here, really influenced a lot of my thinking on this, is William James thinks if we experience something and that experience can be shown to follow articulable patterns, there's sort of a, there's a law-like character to the experience then James thinks it's just our own biases that would lead us to not say that was real. In a very interesting paper that James wrote, he actually quotes someone else approvingly. And the guy is saying, yeah, like your dream world is perfectly real because there's a sort of law that governs the dream world. It's not the law of the physical world, right? So 
I have no problem saying that this Uber Umwelt is sort of this realm of interlocking hierarchies of different sets of laws, right? Different sets of norms. And then what happens is, you know, once we encounter one of these things, there's no norm that carries over from the one Umwelt to the other. And that's why we get the tension and the anxiety that's associated with it. That's an interesting idea. And I like this hyperobject premise, but when I survey the hundreds of high strangeness stories I've read, you do hear everything from little people randomly coming out of a ship to collect dirt, to giant worms that bring you flowers, mantid beans that bring people to some foreign space just to explain some deep, weird cosmic history before putting people back where they found them or just close to where they found them. And even electric talking raccoon beans, that sort of wide range of diverse, bizarre creature encounters, in my mind, is only really a match for two things, dreams and psychedelic trip reports. And even those might be essentially one thing. And I find it weird that so many people in ufology historically would say, no, 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 no. It can't be spontaneous dreams or shamanic journeying. This stuff is real. Or even experiencers say that wasn't a dream. It was real. And it's like every dream feels absolutely real until the trigger of waking up. So I don't know if we're the best assessors of what is real and what's not. And I don't even know if that terminology is right to categorize things, but it seems like the diversity of encounters is just so strange that I'm coming more to the conclusion that it's a match for dreams and that our reality is more dreamlike and there isn't a distinction of real and unreal, but maybe sometimes dreams bleed over. Maybe sometimes dreams can get very physical and very scary. And even if you talk to people who have near-death experiences, that is similar to a trigger of waking up from a dream because people, like there's a famous example of a woman who was struck by lightning and she is really eloquent talking about what that near-death experience was like, but suddenly she's looking at her own body humped over on the ground and is like, huh, I guess I wasn't that body. I guess I'm still myself and I'm now experiencing something else. That's so close to the waking up from a crazy dream. So I'm leaning less towards them being real. I should not use the term real. I need to get better language, but some kind of society or species that has some objective reality outside of the encounters. That's the other thing that I always get stuck on is what are these beings doing when they're not encountering human beings? Because all the encounters seem so focused on the individual. And it's like, I don't see any ideas that they experience joy outside of interacting with humans or mating or love. Like they don't seem to have lives outside of this scene, the scene of whatever the person is noticing. But what are your thoughts on that? The idea that if we really want to understand these bizarre encounters, we should do a better deep dive on dreams and the contents there and how they might be similar. 100%. Going back to you know Carl Jung's canonical book on the UFO, right? Flying Saucers, a Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Sky. I read that with students in a class last year and they were, they were a little surprised that it's, the book is like two-thirds dream analysis. Right. And I think he makes progress to understanding it by doing the dream analysis. You know, okay, a bunch of cool things you said there. I'd like to riff on if that's okay. Sure. So this is a little off color, but 
for so a lot of people experience this when you get into the UFO thing. Like, okay, I can buy the UFO deal, but I'm not going to go for the abduction thing. You know, and I'm not doing Bigfoot. Like Bigfoot's always a line for people. And so for me, what brought me beyond that was actually the first time I started reading and listening to Whitney Strieber. And I was struck by, you know, when Whitney had his initial encounter abduction event, okay, which he's careful not to say aliens, right? Apparently, he went to see his own physician like the next day or soon thereafter. And if I understand right, the doctor was sort of, well, dude, I don't know about what you're talking about, but you were clearly raped. <laughs> did, 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 you know, I mean, you know, so like, yeah, I mean, so it has this dreamlike quality, but it left a pretty detectable physical trace on this man's body. And Whitley, if you're here, I'm not, I'm sorry, I shouldn't snicker. It's not funny. Okay, this was a terrible traumatic thing, and I'm I'm sorry. Okay, but it's true. So it seems like something about this phenomenon is making us question now the dream, and I like how you struggle for a word, reality distinction. Okay, it's making us question that in a way. And you know, you mentioned psychedelic drugs or near-death experiences. And a lot of times the way people want to debunk or disregard the evidential value, what people experience under those conditions, they say, well, look. When you take whatever a psychedelic drug or I would say plant substance, okay, right? Maybe drug's the wrong word there. There's a chemical thing going on in your brain, and you know, we're gonna write that off to chemistry, okay? Or, you know, at near death, maybe there's this endorphin rush to keep you from panicking or something, and we're gonna write that off to the chemistry. But right now, my ability to see this cup is mediated by the chemistry of my brain. I am not gonna see this cup under my bodily conditions without the chemistry operating in my brain. This cup is no less a construction, right? And I'd say it's just a construction, but it's no less a construction of my neurochemistry than what anybody might have seen on a DMT trip. Right, right. That's a great point. The term that gets used there often is baseline consciousness. Materialists are okay with saying baseline consciousness is real but anything that strays outside of that is unreal. And, and that's kind of the problem is because there's many different wavelengths or channels on the consciousness radio that you can turn to and different mechanisms, some natural, some completely just with breath work, some with taking a plant, sometimes just by monitoring that weird liminal space between awake and asleep. There's the hypnagogic state that's right in there that there's been a lot of bright minds that kind of found ways to keep themselves in that state and found that answers emerge from problems that they were trying to solve, much like Diana's Tyler and his protocols for receiving downloaded information. And it's something I have to remember too, our baseline consciousness, that which structures our umvelt, was designed basically to get you laid in like the Paleolithic period. I mean, that's it, right? I mean, that's what it's, you know what I mean? It's there for like reproductive success ultimately, okay? There are other priorities that one could have in experiencing the world than reproductive <laughs> success. Do you see what I'm saying? And so, like to say like somehow we're going to make the norm of consciousness what we were evolved for is I think very myopic, right? Because like what we were evolved for was something like very narrow, okay? But who says the world isn't much broader than that? Who says there isn't an uber umvelt that Leaving aside the colorfulness of my example, you see my point, right? Mm -hmm. So I do like the uber umwelt idea, but I guess my thought is 
I would expect the encounters, even if they're bizarre, to be somewhat more standardized. Like you talk about even a shark in the book, the example of a shark is given. And if a shark sees a person in the water, it might not know about the totality of what a person is, but it knows it's meat. It's just an interesting shape of meat. And the same could be said for a seagull. You know, there's a flying creature. Wow, I didn't know there were creatures that could fly. From the shark's perspective, it's like, that's just another shape of meat. And I will consume it in the same way. But when a shark encounters a human or a seagull, it may be foreign and bizarre, but it's still kind of standardized. Whereas the UFO experience is so diverse, like creatively diverse, that I would expect if this was something that we somewhat encounter and we can't really conceive of, that it would just have a more standardized appearance, like a craft, you know. But the craft is a trope that isn't even really encapsulating all these high strangeness experiences. And if we're going to talk about evolution, I have, you know, some issues with evolution. Some people think the whole theory of evolution, even though there's obviously truths in it that are provable, the idea that we came from apes is to try to subvert God and make everything just a meaningless universe. You know, you know that whole thing. But from an evolutionary perspective, wouldn't there be some advantage to sensing this hyper object if it disrupts our lives so much and can be so bizarre? I mean, why would we filter that out when it does have effects on us and there'd be some evolutionary advantage to sensing it? This is a really good question, Greg. I appreciate this. After that, I want to circle back to the dream thing too. So, say this shark and seagull thing, they're pretty foreign to each other, but they're also pretty close. I use sharks and humans because, like, you know, probably we encountered our first shark pretty late on. <laughs> okay. You know, maybe, I don't know. I would still say, though, sharks eat meat. We eat meat. Sharks breed sexually. We breed sexually. Okay. So there's, there is probably more common ground there than there is complete uncanniness. But that doesn't mean there couldn't be things that were just completely irrelevant to our evolution that are out there. And let's say we encounter now because we travel to different places that we don't normally travel to, or because of television or radio or something like that, we're now keyed into like wavelengths of light and sound and things that we weren't before. Because what I'm proposing is like the initial Uber Umbelt hypothesis is say, look, what if there were things that were completely aloof to us in terms of our basic evolutionary past, right? We didn't eat them. They didn't eat us, right? You know, like we weren't competing for any resources at all. They were just irrelevant. But then, you know, humans developed to a point where we like start occupying more space, metaphorically speaking, than we had in the past. And then you see something like that. So I think if that kind of experience happened, it would be all bets are off for making sense of it. You're just going to take it and throw it into whatever available category is hovering around in your unconscious, right? And I think that makes sense for like why in the 1950s, suddenly people start seeing these as militarized aircraft, right? Well, why? Because we just won a war, right? With militarized aircraft and we felt threat of militarized aircraft. So that was like kind of hanging around in the unconscious, right? This is why in say, you know, the middle ages, it was seen as a different kind of thing because there were other things hanging around in the unconscious that you could use to make sense of this. There's the example of the Hudson Valley UFO. 
And actually, this comes up in the conversation that Diana and I had, where you have like one person saw it as the classic, I think, like little gray aliens getting out of the ship. Another person saw it as something completely different, and it was the same appearance, right? It was the same event. That to me seems that kind of makes sense. Like, if this really is something that we're not designed to deal with, then we're going to essentially sort of subconsciously make up something on the spot to make sense of it. And I think that makes sense of why it's like so irregular in these ways. And then I think Valet's point still stands is okay, so where we might look for regularity and understanding of the UFO then is not in its appearances to us, but it's an effect on our behavior. Like maybe we can get a better sense of what it is by what it causes us to do, how it causes us to behave. And because maybe that's its intention is to change our behavior. Mm-hmm. I love that. And in terms of changing our behavior, another idea that's really interesting, because we know that our senses are limited, like we see less of the visible light spectrum than we know exists. We don't hear as well as even other animals hear. but when you start asking why would our senses be limited, you know, you can say evolutionarily we got what we needed, but there are some researchers who go deep into the oldest writings we have from the Sumerians who write about the Anunnaki, this godlike council in the ancient past. And some of these researchers interpret the text to suggest that we have been engineered not to see them, not to see our own masters. And that's really interesting. Like if they existed in a particular frequency or light spectrum that we once maybe could see. And then they were like, no, you know, maybe we got too rebellious. We didn't like our masters. We didn't like all this. So they had the power to genetically tweak us and they kind of capped human senses within the bounds of our new cave that they made for us to use a philosophical Plato's cave analogy. But What do you think about that idea? Obviously, it's just speculation. We don't know what the hell humans were like before the Sumerian texts, but it is a lot of guesswork and assumptions of how humanity developed based on little pieces. But there's an interesting idea there, especially given that the oldest writings about other beings are pretty complex. Like there's an assumption that human cognition over time has gotten better. But like when I look at older texts and stuff. I'm like, man, these are some pretty complex ideas that we're still talking about today, trying to understand. And you were talking about them in Samaria. That's interesting. It is interesting. Look, the speculation train ended at like minute, or we left on that at minute two of this thing. So don't, you don't have to apologize to me. I'm, I mean, I'm a philosopher. I, I get paid to speculate wildly. Right? Okay. So I like that you bring that up because once again, first of all, it hits the anti-humanism trope that I think is the important thing to take from all of this, okay, is like, hey, what makes you think humans were evolved or designed, whatever way we want to think about that, to get the whole picture? Maybe we weren't. And I think that humility and all the dark questions that come with humility are very important, especially at this moment in history, I think, are very important for us. I think whether we come at it through an evolutionary story, a mythological story, a supernatural story, I think all of those views should lead us to think that we may well not be set up right, to get the whole story. And we have to account for that. We have to account for the fact that when we look at the world, we are not going to get it very easily without putting our dirty fingerprints on it because we have to get a hold of it. And I think 
we have to always be asking, you know, what role are our limitations doing in this? And I think when you start going control hypothesis with valet, and I guess with me now, okay, something like what you're suggesting that you know, maybe there's like a cosmic conspiracy to keep us in the dark about something, cannot rule that out. That's the thing. When you admit that this is unknown and you admit this is a paradigm mover, you forfeited your ability to presume a happy ending to it, right? And I think that's important if we're going to be serious thinkers about this. I agree. And I think this also gets really interesting when you fold in technology. I know you've given presentations on AI and the human soul, and you talked to Diana Pasolka about Prometheus. And we've had conversations in the past here about the trickster element applied to technology. So first off, a lot of people who are the inventors of this stuff, they will admit, hey, the idea came to me in a dream. I had a download experience. And then there's many people who probably won't admit that, and it could still be true. But I like the thought of a trickster being seeding technology and us thinking that it's a good thing when really it's like a dirty trick. Some could say like from a Luciferian perspective that most technology takes us further away from God slash source slash nature. We get the TV and our imaginations wither away. We get the cell phone and we stop remembering phone numbers. We get the GPS and we lose our navigational abilities. We outsource everything and we think this is progress. But from another perspective, we're only weakening ourselves. Food technology is another great example. We make highly technical and well-engineered foods like the Cheeto that plays with our senses and sensations but none of the engineered food can touch the nutritional value of an orange or a carrot. So it is more of an illusion of progress than anything else. And I think there's some really interesting stuff there. It's like, are these ideas seated in people to screw with our society and take us further from, when I say God, I just mean like nature or our natural abilities. I remember phone numbers from when I was 10 years old, still today but I don't know my wife's phone number. I have to look it up under wife in my phone, these sorts of things. I love under wife. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like our wives have become you know, digital files. Exactly. That's a really good example, Greg. When it comes to technology, I think there is an irony built into human nature. As you mentioned, we already see this in Prometheus myth. And I suspect there are other myths from other world traditions that have a similar view. Because Prometheus, right? You know, he's famously in trouble because he stole the fire from the gods and gave it to humans. And I think if you really read at least the version of the myth that you get in Aeschylus, which I think is the most interesting one in Prometheus Bound, Prometheus is the creator of humanity. In in Aeschylus's version, the humans were not distinct from other animals before Prometheus pulls them up into technological being. Because Aeschylus counts mathematics, language, all crafts, everything, that's technology. It's a way of humans manipulating their environment to prosecute their interests. Okay? And I agree with him. So Prometheus is seen as like the origin. It's like, like, I think we should read the Prometheus myth. This is a story about human origins and human distinctiveness. Okay, And in the beginning of Aeschylus's version of it, Prometheus is being nailed down to the rock. And ironically, the deity that's nailing him down points out, you're being nailed down by a bar and chain. You're being nailed down by technology. Okay, Technology is undoing you, Prometheus. 
And he mocks him like, your name means foreknowledge. That's what Prometheus means. And you didn't see this coming. And it, later in the play, Prometheus says, I saw it coming. I knew it. I just wanted to do this. <laughs> okay. I just wanted to spite the gods by creating humans. But so humans are in this myth, they're just kind of the victimized plaything of Prometheus in his attempt to spite the other gods. He's a trickster. The joke's on us, ultimately. Right. Very parallel to Lucifer, kind of, in some ways. Yeah. Well, in Paradise Lost, the Lucifer character is based on Prometheus. Okay. So, yeah. So, a lot of our modern imagination about what Lucifer would be, it's from Prometheus. And there is a claim in the Aeschylus play that in the 13th generation, the descendant of a human is going to knock off Zeus in service to Prometheus. You know, it's predicting the death of God. So here's what I take away from that, though, is to be human is to be technological. But then ultimately, it seems like there's a risk that we're going to undo ourselves with this. That human nature is this incredible thing that we can make an umbrella for ourselves. We can decide how it's going to go in a lot of ways, unlike other animals, because we can like technologically manipulate our environment and make more kinds of information available to us and more kinds of thinking available to us. But from the beginning, Prometheus said that's going to get out of hand and we're going to get nailed to the rock by our own technology. So I kind of see this the way Martin Heidegger sees this is that yes, we are on rails to something, some kind of overcoming of humanity. <laughs> okay. And there's no getting off the rails. Maybe there's some hope on the other side of it, but we're going to be undone by this. Right. There's the Joe Rogan quote that humans are the sex organs of the machine world. I like that. You know, we are basically designed to put them together. Like we only exist as a pathway to the technological development that really wants to emerge, kind of like the banana cozying up to people to get to space. Like we had to be here to put the machines together to birth AI or whatever comes in the future. And those are fun ideas. And so before we run out of time, we have segued naturally into talking about philosophy and broader life stuff. But I did want to ask you a broad philosophy question, because I think there's a lot of people looking around at culture today and lacking any sort of pride in it or pride in themselves. And some people are going back to the Greeks for guidance. There's all kinds of Twitter accounts that are somewhat anonymous yet they're just really pulling out philosophy and re-examining the nature of virtue and the best ways of being in this world by looking at ancient teachers. And I know you went through a radical physical transformation from being overweight to basically being Vitruvian man. And UFOs are fun, but let's leave people with some actual advice from a PhD philosophy professor regarding trying to live a virtuous life in the modern era and or the best practices to find inspiration in an uninspired world if we feel stuck or unhappy with our current condition? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. That's a very good question. Yeah, I want to be careful, you know, holding myself up as an example. But I will, I will say, using that one point you make, like I, I'm 50 now. When I was 30, I weighed over 300 pounds. I didn't have the guts to get on a scale. <laughs> But I know I lost a lot of weight. And at that point, I was down to like 275. And I lost all that like in my early 30s. And I've like, I walk around now at like 180 pounds, right? And so I've kept it off for 20 years. So for me, I really did realize that I was living at odds with the stuff I taught. Okay. So I was teaching philosophers, talking about the virtues of moderation and temperance and the necessity of 
seeing the body as an image of the soul. And I just wasn't owning up to that. And that was something that became important to me for my own children too. You know, like, was I going to be some kind of a hypocrite? And I think really what did it for me is I, I got into myself psychologically and kind of got to why I was doing that to myself. So I think to answer your question, okay, so the Oracle of Delphi, where Socrates claims to have gotten his mandate, and we're all like the insightful news comes from in like the Greek tragedies. The Oracle, the motto was know thyself. So I think we all have to begin with that notion of shadow work. Like what does really go inside of us, on inside of us? Like really what does make us tick? Like why do I actually do the things I do? What are the real reasons for that? And I think until you can like ask those dark questions, there's the risk that you're living a sham life, that you're just doing what was handed to you or you're just doing what's convenient to you given like how you would prefer to think about yourself or you're always letting yourself off the hook, et cetera, et cetera. I think you have to be willing to not just question the world, I agree, but I don't think you're in any position to question the world until you've questioned yourself, until you've really kind of got to the bottom, like what are my motivations? I say I believe X and Y for this reason, but is that really why I believe it? I say I have this or that problem for these reasons, but is that really why or is that just a convenient story? I think that kind of self-criticism is your first step, I think, for everything, right? Because I can't say, hey, I'm not going to believe all these things that I can't say, I'm going to liberate myself from all these conspiracies that are trying to manipulate me Well, until I can trust myself because otherwise am I just choosing my preferred conspiracy? And you can't trust yourself until you've really put yourself into question. So, like, what I counsel people is, and this is what philosophy should do, it should be about self-knowledge in a critical way, is put your most cherished things up against critical scrutiny. Get in that habit. And I'm not saying you're going to lose those things, but for all you know, they could be a sham and a lie until you're willing to do that. Yeah. Man, I think that's great advice, especially for a conspiracy audience. A lot of us have had to wrestle with the idea of trusting ourselves versus trusting the system. And we're so frustrated with the people in our lives that have blind faith in the system, even though there's extreme corruption. And it's known too. You ask a regular person, does the media lie to you? Do politicians lie to you? They say, yes. And you say, okay, what do they lie to you about? And then you find that they swallow every single thing thrown at them. And it's like they don't apply the broad idea to individual situations. And especially the last few years, they've been really challenging with like, man, can I trust what's being said through the fear box or do I need to trust myself? And then because, yeah, we can't change the system. We're always kind of counterculture thinkers. We're not really going to be able to impose a new system out there. We have the one we have. The big machine is running regardless. So what can you do? You really can only take the reins of your life in very serious ways. Like that's why it's been a joke here recently that farming has become punk rock, like truly <laughs> alternative. And it's exciting to be like, no, I am going to take my own food and sustenance and my family's stuff into my own hands because I'm not happy with the products that are given to me by this big machine. They're insufficient. They're not nutrient dense. 
But are you really going to take that on? You can intellectually recognize that the system is not serving you, but so many people pretend it is because it's very difficult to take the reins and really do the physical work that your thought process takes you towards. People want to stop right there and just kind of get stuck in what I say is like a intellectual circle jerk about like, let's keep talking about what they're discussing at the World Economic Forum and what's coming. Let's just keep talking about it because for some people, they think awareness is some kind of action, but it really isn't. You have to then do the hard work once you realize you're being screwed. Awareness without action is just complicity. There you go. And you've probably had this happen, you know, where I'll get together with like-minded people and we just sort of play, I like the circle jerk, right? It's the outrage circle jerk, right? Gee, aren't the schools bad? Yeah, they're bad, man. Yeah, it's bad. You know, gee, isn't the government bad? Yeah, it's bad, right? You know, whatever side of the political spectrum you want to go, we just get together and we just do the outrage thing. I get so tired of it. I get so, I know, I know, I know the schools are bad. I know the government's bad. I know, right? But okay, fine. We've established that. It feels good to say that. But what are you doing with your life now? That's an important move. I think that's a great point. Yeah. And you know, my whole job here, this container is about talking. So it's really easy to get stuck in the tendency to just talk. But I hope that people take the insights they gain and go forth and better their lives. But Man, this was a real blast. I think your book contains a lot of great ideas and analysis of the ideas that are good that have come before it. The people you include in it are some of my favorite, and I'm thankful that you've taken the time to talk to me. Give the people any info you'd like about your website, the Substack, the courses, anything they might want to follow up on after hearing this. Sure. Excellent. Yeah. So my website is jdmadden.com. And You'll find there, I have a link to my Substack there. And I think the Substack is a terrible name. It's just Jim Madden's newsletter. I got I to gotta change that. <laughs> I need a better, maybe you can help me get a better title. Good. I'm on Twitter, JD Madden 3. On Twitter, I do a lot of quoting. Whatever I'm reading, I like to kind of keep a log of, of interesting stuff that comes from that. So you might want to have a look at that. I will be doing some courses in the coming year at Morbid Anatomy. Okay, so keep an eye out for that. That's available. You can find unidentified flying hyperobjects at Amazon. You can find thinking about thinking anywhere you can buy books. You can find that one. So uh, I appreciate people taking the time to take my work seriously. I'm really honored by. It. I'm actually surprised by that and honored. So <laughs> right on. Well, Jim, you are the man. I'm glad more people like you are applying their minds to the mysteries because we've been stuck on the same old tropes for too long. But Thanks again and take care. I appreciate it. It's been great, Greg. Anytime if you want to have me back, I'd be honored. For sure. All right, Jim Madden and a philosophical approach to the UFO. I like it. Just the term unidentified flying hyperobject sucked me right in. I had to know what it was about. I heard the back and forth he did with Diana Pasolka and I thought, hey, maybe he'd talk to me too. But he is a great guy. He vetted me first as well and said he liked several episodes and how I do things around here, and that was nice of him to say too. I always do get a little stressed talking to a college professor. I tell my wife this right before recording. It's like PhD-level professors have probably heard it all. Am I really going to come up with any kind of fresh take? 
Am I really going to be able to hold my own for two hours in such a conversation, or will half of it be over my head? Classic philosophy is definitely not my strongest subject. I have found a lot of things in it that I enjoy and consider very much mind-expanding, but there are other times when it can get so deep into the minutia of definitions and categorization that it almost gets too fundamental. There was some famous debate not long ago, maybe a year or two, that would have been a good example. I wish I could remember who it was, but I think two members of the so-called intellectual dark web or something And so many people were excited to hear them talk, and they spent the whole two or three hours defining and redefining the word truth. So that kind of thing can and does happen with philosophy. But Jim's application of his expertise to high strangeness is a lot of fun. His book covers a ton of the themes and people we tend to like most. I really enjoy the way he talks about Plato's cave. Is there a game behind the game behind the game? How many layers deep is ultimate unbridled naked reality? Do we ever see it? (laughs) These are interesting things to think about, especially in a time when so many walking among us are completely mesmerized by the first layer of the hyper charade, if I could coin a new term myself. So there's a lot to like here and in his book, something that we didn't even get to is his take on Jacques Vallée as the Oppenheimer archetype of the digital age. Compelling. Maybe next time. The Uber Umbelt is a fun thing to think about. Man, did I look dumb right off the bat mispronouncing that. You know, sometimes you read a book, and then as soon as someone says the word aloud, it's like, oh, yeah, duh. I don't know why I was saying it this other way in my head. It doesn't seem to hold Steven Snyder back, though, so I guess I shouldn't worry about it much either. But I hope we all digested some good food for thought, and I appreciate Jim applying his talents to such an out-there subject. The Plus Show gets deeper into art and spiritual, some occult-adjacent sorts of things, dreams and trips, missing time, all sorts of great stuff. Become a Plus member if you aren't one already. The links are right there at the top of the show notes, but you know this. And as for the last episode with Shannon Rowan, it pains me to say this, but we might have the lowest score of the year so far. 3.7. Man, I guess you could say that's still decent. It's a 7.4 out of 10. But usually the ratings are so generous that this is clearly not a favorite. If I had to guess, based on a few comments and my own thoughts, rallying against Ivermectin bothered a few people. Others felt there was a lack of depth and details. Maybe some of my questions didn't get answered to listeners' satisfaction. Here would be an example. Someone said, A lot of great info, but it was a huge red flag for me when you asked her about the second two of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, medical interventions, and she was like, I didn't really research those. Well, then why the heck did you put them in your book? Granted, she was quoting someone else's work, but it is in the book. I should be able to ask about it. So yes, I understand the criticisms. I personally liked the book, 700 pages full of good information but it's probably a little hard to recall everything from books of such immense size. 
on a positive note, people really did like the idea of a herbalist's emergency kit and some of the advice there. I will also say that when we were done with the interview, she mentioned that when she reached out about shots fired, I'd said, eh, I don't know. We kind of did the medical thing to death. I don't know if we've waited long enough before doing a new vaccine show. And she said, fine, and suggested we talk more about her book, Wi-Fi Refugee. And I guess I just forgot that we had that conversation and slipped into the old habit of focusing on the newest work. And maybe she should get cut some slack because she thought we were going to be talking primarily about the EMF work. So at least 0.5 of that score is my fault. You guys know I try to diversify the subject matter and not hit one thing too much. And I know this episode and Daniel Rekshan and even Tom Kenyon have a lot of thematic overlap. But I had a couple of cancellations. I'm hoping to reschedule them and they would diversify the lineup for sure. And Shannon was there to bring us back to conspiracy land. I just wish it was rated higher, so I'll try and adjust March's calendar a little bit to make up for that. And that said, you know the last task at hand is always the meetup calendar. Find like-minded locals, expand your network, brace for tough times ahead with people you won't have to catch up to speed. Here we go. On deck, we got Sinspiracy number six, hanging out in Cincinnati, Ohio at the OTR Stillhouse. February 24th, Brisbane, Queensland, Australia at the Maramba Downs Tavern. Don't sleep on it. February 26th, Eugene, Oregon at World Pies. It's going down. And February 9th, Denver gets higher once again at Bar 404 in Denver, Colorado. I'm already seeing some stuff for March. Milforth, Connecticut, LA, Columbus, Ohio, Whitsit, North Carolina. Looks like it's going to be a good one. Hop onto the meetup calendar, HiresideMeetups.com. Get more information if you heard anything that sounded like it might be close to you. And RSVP so the host knows what to expect. It's just good manners. Awesome. So that's that. I hope you had a good time. Big thanks to Jim for his work and insight. Check out his book or Substack if you want to dive deeper. And I'll see you soon with another one. Your move, hyperobject injectors, bizarre beings beyond the Uber umbelts, and creatures beyond my simple comprehension. Your fucking move. From space it was falling, its light started calling, it's making crop circles again. Just as I was looking up, it showed me all the hidden stuff, and now I'm all enlightened and zen. The masses is hard Silver ships are coming yard by yard Now I'm not asleep Don't obey the elite Gotta be to the head Now I start to wonder Now we're not the sheep That they bred us to be Gotta be to the head Now we start to wonder Now we start to wonder of corruption and crime since the visitors set me straight I encourage you to go when you see the saucers glow one by one we'll all end up awake 
You want me? 